We're in John chapter number 20 here this morning. John chapter number 20. For the past four weeks, we have been focusing on the events surrounding the cross. If you've not been here for the last four weeks, I would encourage you that if you would like to listen to those messages, you can go on our website and you can download those right off of the media section, uh, all four of those messages on events surrounding the cross. I have personally and ministerially been enjoying just focusing on the event of the cross. It has been, uh, I know that just the study and the preparing and the focus has been a blessing to me spiritually, and we certainly hope and trust that it's been a blessing to you spiritually as well. But today we take a look at the event that the cross is all about. Without the event that we look at and celebrate today, then the cross of Calvary would have been vain. And so in John chapter number 20, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Scripture says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead." Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and seeth two angels in white sitting at one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord... And I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. I want to preach to you this morning on a question. And that question is, 
How do you see the resurrection? We just read here of three characters. We have a disciple that is unnamed, but we know it from the study of the Scripture to be the Apostle John. Simon Peter is named, and then, of course, we have Mary and Mary Magdalene. These are all at the garden tomb on resurrection morning, and as they look in, they find that that tomb is empty. Now, it had been sealed, and it had been guarded by the Roman soldiers, and so they were surprised to find that that tomb would be empty. As we read, all of the linen that the body of Jesus was wrapped in, it wasn't just in a disheveled state, like lying in the ground, like when I take my clothes off before I go to bed and just throw them in the floor. I have a place right between a little uh, kind of couch that's in our room and my nightstand, and it's right there in the floor between them, and my wife calls it my second closet. That's where I like my clothes to be easily accessible. I get up in the morning and I put those clothes on. Those are my comfortable clothes. Those are the ones that I don't want to go into the wash. Because if they're comfortable, I have favorite comfortable clothes that I like to wear. And while my wife does a great job on keeping up with the laundry, the laundry is not an on-demand thing. And so when those comfortable clothes go in the dirty clothes hamper, it could be hours before I see them again. And so here, these linen clothes, they're not just piled there on at the, the floor of the sepulcher. They're folded neatly, signifying that what had happened was not an accident or a happenstance. It was something that happened on purpose and with purpose. Now, these two characters ran to the tomb, Peter and John. And it's interesting how that John... The disciple whom Jesus loved, representing love itself, that he outrun Peter to the grave. He got there first. Peter is not a picture of love, but Peter is a picture of grace. All of the Lord's dealings with Peter typified the subject of grace. Hence, we have an analogy that love will get you to the tomb But it takes grace to get you in there. It's the same way with salvation. The love of God will draw you to the cross, will draw you to salvation, but only the grace of God can get you saved. Peter, John, Mary. Mary is wondering, what did you do with the body of the Lord? And she was there early in the morning before it ever got daylight. I would say that the last three days of their life, were probably some of the darkest and most troublesome times in their life. I know that sometimes we go through life and we wish that it was just three days of trouble. Sometimes we have three months of trouble. Sometimes three years of trouble. But while three days is not a long time, the intensity of this sorrow must have been such a heavy burden for them to bear that They were anticipating. They knew that something was going to happen. And the Lord had told them, but just to hear, just to hear and to mentally accept something doesn't mean that we receive it in the heart. And so there were some things that had to go on before they could really grasp in their heart that Jesus, the one who they had physically seen, 
crucified on the cross of Calvary. They'd seen what had been done to his body. They had seen that he was dead as dead can be. They had experienced all of those tremendous natural uh, earthquakes and the darkness and all of the supernatural events that had taken place right before their eyes. And in anticipation, they went to see, is he still there? Mary, I think, was just grieving and just like someone going to a grave of a deceased one. It was more of an emotional and sentimental thing for her. But I think that Peter and John, when they came to the the, the sepulcher and the stone was rolled away, they were looking for something a little bit more. I think that John probably was hopeful that the resurrection had taken place because he um, he needed to see the one whom he loved so much. He missed the Lord Jesus. I think perhaps maybe Peter had a different reason. Peter wanted to see the Lord so that he could maybe see a look of assurance from the Lord's eyes after Peter had failed him so miserably. And he just needed to see the Lord's eyes and to know that even though Jesus had told him that he would be converted, that he'd get things straightened out, he wanted to have that assurance that the Lord had forgiven him. It's the same way in life. Sometimes we believe things that we don't necessarily feel. And sometimes we feel things that we don't necessarily believe. And feelings and beliefs can sometimes swirl around in our heart and mind and we really don't know which way's up and which way's down. There was a lot of emotion going on here at the sepulcher when they saw the surprise that the stone was rolled away and that the cave, the grave, was empty. Surprises. Unexpected things can create just a whole gamut of emotions. As I was thinking about that whole gamut of emotions around surprise, I was reminded about a story when I was just a little boy. I think I was in first grade. I was just a little guy and we lived in a a little town, a little um, house in town. We, uh, We rented it. The front of the living room was a little... There was a little room, I don't know what we would call it, it was, I guess, just kind of an office type of space toward the front of the house. And inside of that room, we had an old, one of those old, heavy, upright pianos. I think my sisters were always plinking on the piano, and so uh, that piano was in the corner of that little room that you go into. I'm just a little kid, and I, you know, sometimes kids just kind of get these little mischievous thoughts that come across their mind. And I got this mischievous thought that I'm going to hide from everybody up in the corner of the room, up on top of that piano. And so I climbed up on that piano, and I squatted down in the corner. And so it was around supper time, so I knew they were going to come looking for me. Well, Mom and my sisters, everyone in the house are saying, Randy, it's supper time, and I'm up here in the corner. <laughs> I thought it was so, so clever, you know. They even, get a load of this, it, it had to have been three or four times either my mom or one of my sisters would literally walk into the room looking for me, this far away from me. They weren't thinking to look for me on the top of the piano. 
So I just stay really, really still, and you know, I'm wanting to wanting to chuckle and laugh, and I thought, oh, I'm playing a good one on them. And so finally, after a little while, and they're all just getting frantic, Randy, Randy, where are you? And they're going outside looking for me. And so I kind of peek around the corner, and I see my mom. And so I sneak down, and I walk out into the middle of the living room, and I go, here I am. Mom reaches down, picks me up. Don't you do that again! (laughs) I must have looked like Beetle Bailey when Sarge got done with him. If you remember that comic strip. That wasn't exactly what I was looking for. (laughs) But you know what? She was scared. And that fear created anger at that moment. She wasn't able to process all of the things that were happening at that very moment. Can't you imagine that the disciples and Mary and Mary Magdalene at that very moment as they show up and they see an empty tomb, the surprise, their mind was filled with thoughts, their hearts were filled with feelings, and each one of them had a different perspective on how they were seeing this empty tomb. And so I want to quickly here this morning cover three different aspects, three different ways in which we can look at the resurrection. The first one, number one, is looking at the resurrection as a physical event. Folks, there was a time and a place where this resurrection took place. We've got a number of people from the church this coming fall are going to be going over to Israel and to see the Holy Land as it is commonly called. There's a place there called Gordon's Calvary where there is literally a place on the side of a hill that looks like a human skull and nearby to Gordon's Calvary where there is certainly biblical evidence that that is the place where the Lord was crucified. Uh, Not coincidentally, but there is a garden, the remains of an a wealthy man's garden nearby that place. And there just happened to be a tomb that fits the description of the tomb that is referred to in Scripture. I've got a picture somewhere in some of our tubs of photos of of me when uh, I went with Brother Runyon years ago and saw that place, and a place where I'm literally standing there at the opening going into the tomb. I've seen what the inside of that tomb looks like. I have no idea if that is the actual tomb, but there is enough biblical evidence to say that it is possible that that is the tomb. You say, how did you feel when you saw that? I'll be honest with you, I didn't feel a thing. It's just the physical place. Now, I'm not minimizing the physical place because there is and was a time and a place In fact, this time of the resurrection, the Bible says, uh, Jesus said Himself that prior to that resurrection, He would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says it in Matthew 12, verse number 40, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said, now wait a minute. How could Jesus have been three days and three nights 
in the heart of the earth from the time of His crucifixion to the time of the resurrection, how can that be when our calendar says on Friday that it's Good Friday and that's when the Lord was crucified? I wonder how many religious people all over the entire world and for the last 2,000 years have given some kind of credence to Good Friday. And yet, I don't care where you learn math, whether it was at a university or a Christian school or if you were home teached. That was just... That's what, that's what we always told our kids to tell people. They were homeschooled. Just tell them you're home teached. I don't care where you learn math, you back up from Sunday morning, early in the morning, you're never going to come up with Friday. Three days, three nights. What's the answer? The answer is, he wasn't crucified on Friday. And that the whole world has it wrong. So how can the whole world be that wrong? Easy. The same way that the whole world, the majority, is wrong about the majority of things. We all believe what we want to believe. The worst way to believe is just test and see what is everybody else doing and then go that direction. That's a horrible way to live your life. Because the majority live their life much like lemmings. They're headed off a cliff. Three days and three nights. That's a literal time. That's a literal place. You say, how was Jesus in the heart of the earth? Well, His body was in that tomb. But if you'll recall what the Bible says, man is a body, soul, and a spirit. So the soul, the spirit of Jesus during those three days and three nights, as He prophesied, they were in the heart of the earth. Now, Hold your place here in John. I want to show you something in 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3. We're going to see something that is very significant and I believe very relative to the day and age that we live in. Hardly a day goes by that I read something in national news about a moral or a social dilemma in our country or for that matter in the, in the world. And it seems like that there are moral and social matters that are being debated and argued about that according to the Scripture, there is no argument. God's Word is clear. So what's the problem? The problem is is that people have rejected the Word of God as being the Word of God. Listen, folks, I don't have a religious book here in my hand. I don't have a Baptist book in my hand. I don't have a book here that was written by some great saints and some great Christians and some great uh, Jewish disciples. I've got a book here that according to it is the inspired words of God. When I read it, it's not an, just an example or a suggestion. This is the very words of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. God's not going to tell me that I live by His Word and then hide it from me. I'm so thankful that I have an authority here for my life, and it's called the Word of God. Here in 1 Peter chapter number 3, it says in verse 18, 
For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Listen, we do not, we don't have communion where we reenact the suffering and the death of the Savior. He did it once on the cross of Calvary. He did it for sins, my sins, your sins, for the sins of the whole world. He didn't do it just as an example of charity. He did it as a sacrificial atonement to appease the wrath of a holy God. You say, that sounds a little old-fashioned. Call it what you want, it's the truth. He says that Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now notice what Peter says happened during those three days and three nights. This is one of the things that happened. By which also He went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Listen, not not the the water baptism. That's not what Peter's talking about. Because he says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. But notice the last part that he says of verse 21. He says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a literal event that Christ died on the cross. He died the just, the righteous for the unjust, for the unrighteous. He did it as an atonement for our souls. He was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That place in the heart of the earth was referred to as prison. You've got several different things at this time going on in the heart of the earth. You have a place called hell. You have a place called paradise or Abraham's bosom. Luke chapter number 16 talks about Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man. You also have a place here where these spirits, these angels, if you will, that were disobedient before the flood took place in Genesis chapter number 6, you've got these angelic spiritual beings who are going after strange flesh. So what do you mean by that? Well, Genesis chapter number 6 says the sons of God, angels in that context, saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all that they chose. And the offspring of those were kind of um, superhuman, half-spiritual have physical beings. You say, this sounds crazy. This sounds like something from a science fiction movie. Listen, they say truth is stranger than fiction. A lot of people deny that. They don't want to believe that. But that was part of the uh, of what caused the corrupt human nature to where the entire population of planet Earth, with the exception of Noah and his family, they were all corrupt. And God says, every one of them, He said, I'm going to destroy this earth with a flood. And Noah, He says, Noah have I found righteous before me. Now it's interesting how that Christ says that He preached to those spirits in prison. Jude, verse number 6, says that those spirits are reserved in everlasting chains. 
you know that Jesus didn't go and preach to them so that they could be saved? He went to preach to them as a testimony of what he had done. Some people think that Noah was out preaching trying to get people on the boat. You don't find that in the Scripture, folks. The Bible says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The Bible says that after Noah built that ark, that God said to Noah, Come thou into the ark. Noah had to be invited into the ark, and God said, Because thee and thee only have I seen righteous before me. You know what people had to do? Listen, Noah was preaching righteousness, and God was extending His mercy. But before anyone, during the time before the flood, could be invited onto that ark, they first had to, from the heart, repent and turn to God. And you know, that's the problem with modern Christianity today. We have a message in Christianity where the preacher's inviting everybody onto the ark and not preaching any message of righteousness and repentance. It's a false message. Jesus preached as a testimony to those spirits. This is a physical event that takes that took place, folks. The Scripture reveals so much about it. It's more than just simply a resurrection tomb. There were some amazing things that were going on in the invisible spirit world for those three days and those three nights. Now, praise the Lord. On that third day, the Bible says the graves were opened. You know what God did? God took all of those Old Testament saints that had died before, the righteous that were in Abraham's bosom. And the Bible says that Christ led captivity captive. Those graves were opened, and when Jesus rose again from the dead, so did those righteous saints that were being kept there in Abraham's bosom. What a magnificent, magnificent physical event. You know, Jesus preached to those spirits. We see that the stone was rolled away. Do you know that that stone didn't have to be rolled away? That wasn't for Jesus' sake. In fact, go back to John chapter number 20. Let me show you something that you might find interesting. If you're saved, I mean truly born again, one of these days we're going to get a glorified body. And the Bible says that that body is going to be like the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Now that's going to be a body without a sin nature. Praise the Lord for that. I don't know about you, I get tired of battling me. I'm my worst problem when it comes to righteousness. I'm going to have a body that is without pain, without death, without all of the struggles that we have. I'm going to have a body that is not bound physically the way, I mean, Jesus' body, you think about it. He could move at the speed of thought. I don't know how fast that is but it's got to be way, way faster than the speed of light. And I can't fathom the speed of light. And so we see here in verse number 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Jesus didn't have to open the door to come into the room. 
I don't know if he went through the door, if he went through the wall, came up through the floor, came down through the ceiling. All I know is the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to show the world outside that he was risen again. It wasn't for his sake. It was for ours. And then I want you to real quickly notice verse 17 as we already read it, where Jesus said unto Mary, he said, touch me not for I am not yet ascended to my father. You know what's going on here, folks. If you study the Bible, we know that Jesus was not only the sacrifice, but he was also our high priest. And so when Jesus shed his own blood on Calvary's cross, the high priest in the Levitical system in the Old Testament would take and that lamb would be slain. They, the priest would take the blood of that lamb and would bring it back before the Holy of Holies and present it in the presence of God there to the mercy seat. And when he would come out of that Holy of Holies, he'd come out before the people and he would say, Peace be unto you. The sacrifice has been accepted. Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus was the priest. And he said to Mary, don't touch me, don't defile me. I still have to ascend. He had already resurrected, but he hadn't taken that blood up to the third heaven and presented it before God. You know, what's interesting is in uh, one of the other gospel accounts, we find that uh, Jesus had a little discussion there with doubting Thomas. Remember, Thomas says, well, I won't believe. And not unless I see the prince in his, in his hands and, and the, the, the hole in his side, I won't believe. And you know what Jesus said just not too many hours later? He says to Thomas, he said, go ahead, touch me. Help yourself. During that time period, I don't know how fast that it happened, but he ascended and he performed that high priestly duty and then came back again. He was not bound by the physical. He wasn't bound by time. Telling you what, that resurrected body is going to be a wonderful, wonderful body to live in, folks. You can do all that you want to try to make this body the best that it can be. You might improve it a little bit for a little while, but ultimately you're going to lose that battle. But if you're a Christian, you can have that hope that we're going to get a resurrected body and it's going to be nothing like this one that we have today. And so you can look at the resurrection as a physical act, or number two, you can look at the resurrection as a powerful force. There was a pastor with his little five-year-old son that was driving down the country road, and they happened to pass by an old country church that had a cemetery. As they drove by, there was a grave that had been dug. Evidently, somebody in the church had passed away. They were getting ready to uh, have a funeral. And so the little five-year-old boy looked, and he saw out in that cemetery all of this mounds of dirt that was piled up. And he said, hey, look, Dad, someone got away. One of them got out. Well, obviously he was misunderstanding what was going on. No one got out. There was someone that was getting ready to be put in to the ground. In Matthew 28 and verse number 6, the angels said, He is not here, 
for he is risen. I like the next three words. As he said. When I think of those three words, I think of the powerful force of the resurrection. He rose again as he said. There's a lot of things that I can say that I'm going to do, but that doesn't mean that I have the power to do it. Uh, there's a lot of things that I can set goals and, you know, I could, I could start lifting weights and I could say, I'm going to set a goal. I'm going to bench press 200 pounds. <laughs> trying to be realistic here. <laughs> I, I want to bench press 400 pounds. Uh, you know what? I don't care how much I dedicated my life to that. That's never, never going to happen. I, I don't have the uh, ability to do that. And at my age, I don't have the time. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. There's been times when I've failed to keep a promise not because I wanted to, but I just, I tried, but I failed. I wasn't able to do what I hoped that I could do. Jesus said, I'm going to, I'm going to raise again the third day. Jesus had the power to do that. Take a look just a few pages back to John chapter number 10 with me. John chapter number 10. And notice here what the Lord Jesus says in verse number 17. He says, therefore, doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me. Jesus wasn't a martyr. He was a savior, a sacrifice. He said, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Listen, Jesus Christ had the power to resurrect. Now, where did that power come from? Well, obviously, He was the Son of God. But there's there's an additional explanation to that. When you think about it, you, I, I think about our banner here on that gives us Romans 6.23. The beginning of that verse says, For the wages of sin is death. I'm sure most of you here in the congregation today, you've been to a funeral. If you're very old at all, you probably lost a loved one, an uncle, an aunt, a grandparent, or a parent. You've been to that funeral and you've seen that life that is no longer there. Just the body, but no longer the life. Do you know what caused that? Sin caused that. Not just simply Adam's sin, but because of Adam's sin, death passed upon all men. Not that we're dying because of what Adam did. We do what we do because of what Adam did. And because we do what we do, then now we inherit the wages of sin as well. I I, I wonder why the liberal media hasn't figured out a way to blame all of the problems on the world on Adam. But that wouldn't be very... That wouldn't be very righteous, would it? It's a whole lot more righteous to blame God for it, right? Even though God never wanted this world to be the way that it is today. The wages of sin is death. By the way, by the way, we use this verse in soul winning to try to show people that they need to be saved. 
But you know that that verse is literally not written to the lost, but it's written to the saved. Sin is a horrible thing, and no one will escape its wages. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. It's a powerful, powerful force. Jesus never committed a sin of His own. The only sin that He ever experienced was when the just died for the unjust and literally became sin there on the cross of Calvary in our place. 2 Corinthians 13, verse number 4 says, For though He was crucified through weakness, yet He liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, but we shall live with Him by the power of God toward you. Listen, if you have Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have Him as a person. If you have Him as a person, then you have the same power to live a resurrected life. There was a submarine back in World War II that got stuck at the bottom of New York Harbor. They were down there, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be stuck in a submarine. I, I think everyone is a little bit claustrophobic. You know, it's one thing when you know that there's hope of getting out, but when you're down at the bottom and there is, you know, the engines don't work, you don't have any airflow, the air becomes stale with all of the carbon uh, dioxide that's coming out of all of the bodies and breathing, and boy, it was um, it was a pretty tough situation to be in. They sent down some rescue divers eventually. And I don't know how many days that they had been trapped before the rescue diver got down to them, but back in those days, those rescue divers had the metal uh, metal boots that they would wear and the, the, the hose that would go up to the surface. And as that diver came and landed on the top of that submarine, they heard those steel boots hit the surface of the metal. And they could hear that diver walking along the top of the submarine trying to figure out a way that they could rescue all of those sailors. They began to tap. They took a, a metal hammer and they began to tap on the top of the submarine and they tapped in Morse code the following words. They said this, Is there any hope? The diver who recognized the Morse code and could tell what they were saying took the bottom of his boot and tapped back in Morse code, yes, there is hope. I got news for you folks. Wherever your life is, whether you think that you are sailing the seven seas with the wind at your back and everything's going great, there's going to come a time when you're going to, your life is going to be just like those sailors in that submarine where you feel that you are trapped and there is no hope, but I got news for you. The power, the powerful force of the resurrection is the hope that God has for each and every one of us. And then finally, number three, I want to speak to you about the resurrection as a principle to live by. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. The resurrection, not only as a physical event, not only as a powerful force, but the resurrection as a principle to live by. 1 Corinthians 15 and 
Look with me in verse number 12. This entire chapter, Paul's dealing with the subject of resurrection. And he says in verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Obviously, Paul here is is responding to what they're saying. He's being facetious. He says in verse 16, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins." Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. All of those loved ones that you went to their funeral or you've spoken at the funeral, that they're in heaven, we're going to see them again. Listen, if Christ isn't resurrected from the dead, none of that's going to happen. But notice with me verse number 19. This is the crux of this entire conversation. Paul says, if in this life only... We have hope in Christ Jesus. We are of all men most miserable. There are so many different lives that can be lived. There are lives that people try to do the right thing, set goals, have ambitions, and it just seems like their whole life, nothing ever works out. There are other people that have that Midas touch. No matter what they touch, no matter what they do, it just seems like it works out. And then there's people with everything in between. People who everything seems to go good, and then people that just live a whole life of tragedy and trial and trouble and turmoil. So how do you explain that? I can't explain it. Sometimes people live lives and the, the, the circumstances of their life are a fruit of their decisions. Some people make foolish decisions and end up with horrible outcomes. Other people make wise decisions and they have a good life. But there's always people here and there that seem to break that rule and no matter what they do, it turns sour. There are other people that it seems like they do the wrong thing all the time and it appears outwardly that they have a great life. I can't explain all of that, and neither can you. But I know one thing, no matter how good or how bad our life is here on this earth, it makes no sense if there's not a life afterward. Listen, someone foolishly wrote a book that was entitled, Your Best Life Now. I got news for you, if your best life is now, then you're of all men most miserable Because the hope that we have, the principle to live by, is no matter what happens on this life, we've got a hope that there is a resurrection and all of the things that don't make sense in this life, all the things that don't seem to be just or fair, i got news for you, God's going to sort it all out because He's God. You can try to figure it out all you want, but I'd rather just cling to that hope that I can live my life for the Lord Jesus Christ, and whatever I don't understand, whatever doesn't make sense, 
it's going to make sense when I stand before Him as a child of God. Eternal life. A home in heaven. That's going to make it all worth it. Some of you have heard of the golf announcer, former professional golfer by the name of Paul Azinger. He was um, diagnosed with cancer years ago, and as he was going through that battle, he was struggling and battling depression, and he had a friend that said this to him. He said, he called him Zinger, he said, Zinger, we're not in the land of the living, going to the land of the dying. We're in the land of the dying, going to the land of the living. Folks, that's true as true can be. Our life should not be about the here and the now. It should be focused on the there and the then. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 31, Paul goes on to say, I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Now let me ask you this question. You may say, well, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in heaven. I believe in the afterlife. Well, the question is, are you living your life in light of the resurrection? Is it real to you? Let me tell you something. If you had an appointment with a tax auditor two weeks from now, I guarantee you, you'd be taking some pretty serious attention to make sure that all of your documents and all of your things were in order for that two-week appointment. You wouldn't be taking it lightly. Are you living in light of the resurrection in the same way? Because it's as sure as sure can be. Notice in verse number 34, he says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Paul says to a group of church members, religious people who believed some things, but they weren't living their life in light of the resurrection. He says, you need to awake to righteousness. He said, there are people out there that don't have any knowledge of God. They have no testimony of God except for what they see in your life. Do they see in your life that there was a resurrection power that took place? I know beyond any shadow of a doubt, if some of my friends from high school, I mean, were to, if I were to see some of them today, if they were to just happenstance uh, visit this church, not knowing who this Pastor Randy Mitchell is, and realize that it's the same guy that they went to school with, I got news for you, they would know that something happened to this man. And I'll tell you what that something was. It was the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He changed my life. He changed my life from a life of sin and wickedness and worldliness to a life of righteousness and holiness. Not perfection. Don't get me wrong. Not perfection. But listen, my life's different than it once was thanks to the resurrection power. Not thanks to my willpower. Hey, I tried to fix myself, I don't know how many times, 
to change my behavior, change my patterns, to start start saying no to those sins, but they had a power over me. It took the resurrection power as a principle to live by to break that power over me. Lester Roloff, when he was just a boy, was out in the playground playing marbles, and he was really, really good at shooting marbles. Some of you younger people don't even know what I'm talking about. And uh, they, you know, during recess, they'd play marbles, and uh, Brother Roloff's mom came from a godly Christian home. His mom always said, now Lester, don't you be playing for keeps, that's gambling. Some of the boys, when they'd uh, knock all the, their opponent's marbles out of the circle, if they knocked the marble out, then they got to keep that person's marble. And she says, don't do that. Well, Lester didn't have any very many nice marbles. He just had two or three or four, and they were cracked and ugly. And one of the rich kids in school by the name of Frank, he had a bag of marbles that were just, I mean, a big bag of marbles. And he challenged Lester, and so they played. And uh, he said, let's play for keeps. Lester looked at all of those beautiful marbles, and he knew that he was good enough to win all those marbles. And so, lo and behold, they played, and he won that entire bag of marbles. Recess ended. He's sitting there in school. The Holy Spirit is eating him up. And he's thinking about Mama saying, Now, Lester, don't do that. That's gambling. That's not right. His conscience is bothering him and the next recess takes place and he didn't even want to go out and, and see the marbles being played. Well, Frank, who had no marbles, came back into the schoolroom and said, Hey, Lester, would you spot me? They call it a taw, T-A-W. That was the marble that they'd shoot with. He said, Would you spot me a taw so that he could play marbles? And Lester said, Tell you what, I'll do you even better. He gave him back all of his marbles. He says, no, you don't have to do that. They're yours. And he said, no, they don't rightfully belong to me. They belong to you. And he gave him those marbles back. After he did that, he had peace in his heart. And he felt clear. That conscience was clear once again. Well, years go by. Lester Roloff becomes a great preacher. And he's preaching about five miles from Dawson, Texas. And the last night of the meeting, there was a gentleman that walked into that meeting and sat down. And lo and behold, it was Frank. And that night, Frank walked the aisle and accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. Lester said, I wonder what would have happened if I hadn't have given those marbles back and done the right thing and had a clear conscience. I wonder if my testimony would have been powerful enough to make a difference to where he would have listened to the sermon that I was preaching if my life wasn't backing up what I was preaching. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in a world where people don't know God, do they see the resurrection in your life? In conclusion, how do you see the resurrection? Is it just a religious tradition? Do you see it just as a neat miracle to talk about? Oh, listen, folks, it was way, way more than a miracle. 
Do you see it as the most important and valuable event in the history of the universe? Well, it's only that valuable and that important if it's important to you. To you personally. William Sangster was a great Methodist preacher in England in the early 1900s. Toward the end of his life, an illness paralyzed his vocal cords and he was totally unable to speak. On Easter Sunday, just before he died, he wrote a note to his daughter. And this is what the note said. He said, how terrible to wake up on Easter and have no voice to shout. He is risen, but it is far worse to have a voice and not want to shout. Are you living your life in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's good to be in your house today. It's a joy to be able to tell these folks about your resurrection, about the physical, about the spiritual power. And I pray, Father, that, that if there be anyone here today that has never experienced the resurrection power of salvation, I pray that they would trust Christ as their personal Savior before they leave this place today. I pray for those that are saved. Lord, that are not really living their life in light of this resurrection. I pray that You'd speak to all of our hearts. Show us what You need us to see. Lord, tell us what You want us to do. May our hearts be open and attentive. May we listen to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'd like for you to stand to your feet, grab a hymnal, There's an insert in the very back of the book, hymn number 480. It's entitled, Here is Love. Here is Love. This is a great hymn that was sang during the Welch Revival of the early 1900s. It was a song that God greatly used. As we sing this song, would you think about what the words are saying? Perhaps maybe God would use this song in your heart here today as we sing The Altars Open. If you'd like to come down and pray, just walk on down here and talk to God as we sing.